Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. Hello and welcome to The Common Rounds. In today's talk, we'll be covering ischemic heart disease. What is ischemic heart disease? Well, it's an imbalance between oxygen demand of the cardiomyocytes and the supply from the coronary arteries. So there's a supply and demand mismatch. Angina, also known as angina pectoris, is the stable form of ischemic heart disease. There's another angina variant called Prinz metal angina, and that's cardiac ischemia due to coronary artery spasm. Before we talk about the pathology and the pathogenesis, let's cover a bit of basic anatomy. So there are two main coronary arteries that originate at the root of the aorta. These are the left coronary arteries and the right coronary arteries, and they can be subdivided into smaller arteries. So looking at the left coronary artery, we have the left anterior descending coronary artery, which supplies the anterior portion of the left ventricle, the anterior two-thirds of the intraventricular septum, and the apex of the heart. The left circumflex coronary artery supplies a lateral wall of the left ventricle in about 80% of individuals. Now looking at the right coronary artery, it has its own various branches as well, but the right coronary artery mainly supplies the posterior basal wall of the left ventricle, the posterior one-third of the intraventricular septum, the right ventricle in about 80% of patients, and the posterior medial papillary muscles in the left ventricle, as well as the atrial ventricular and sinoatrial nodes. From a physiological point of view, there are two physiological concepts that I want to cover, and that's the blood flow physiology, as well as the relationship between wall tension and size. So looking at blood flow physiology, the left coronary artery blood flow drops to less than zero at the start of the isovolumetric contraction phase. And maximal blood flow is achieved during early diastole. So the left ventricle and the atrium are perfused larger during diastolic period. And when there's an increased heart rate, the diastole period is decreased and there's less perfusion of the left ventricle and the left atrium. And the reason for that is inadequate time is given for filling of the ventricles and so there's less blood ejected. In terms of the right coronary artery flow, the flow of this artery is variable and maintained and it doesn't reach zero blood flow. The right ventricle and the atriums are therefore perfused during both systole and diastolic period. And so, as you can see, there's phasic blood flow, which varies depending on the cardiac cycle, particularly for the left coronary artery. In terms of wall tension and size, mechanical compression of the left coronary artery occurs due to the high left ventricular pressure. This is mainly affecting the subendocardial vessels, which are compressed during systole, and so flow within the subendocardial region of the heart is temporarily reduced, and this means that this region is highly prone to hypoxia. In contrast, the subepicardial vessels are minimally affected, so the outer layer of the heart is relatively good, well perfused, but the inner layer of the heart can become hypoxic during ventricular contraction. Now, we've covered a little bit of physiology, let's turn our attention to pathogenesis. There are a number of reasons why patients can develop ischemic heart disease, in particular stable angina. As you can imagine, there's potential reduction in luminal diameter of the blood vessels, and that can be due to atherosclerosis, which is probably one of the most common causes of stable angina, and that can affect one or more vessels, which become obstructed, and the disease and the degree of obstruction can be progressive. And when stenosis is around 70%, patients can develop angina-like symptoms, which will cover shortly. It also can be due to the fact that there's less time spent by the heart in diastole and so the blood vessels of the heart are less perfused. This could be due to a number of factors such as tachycardia, e.g. from hypothyroid disease, atrial fibrillation or any other tachycardic disorders. Ventricular hypertrophy is another cause of ischemia and that can be due to hypertension, aortic stenosis or any other causes that can cause abnormal enlargement of the heart. As you can imagine this can impact the luminal diameter of the blood vessels upon contraction of the heart leading to hypoxia. It also means that the ventricles have a higher surface area, which may reduce the capacity for blood supply to adequately oxygenate all of the cardiomyocytes, and this results in ischemia. Also, increased muscle bulk means that the heart is 
less efficient as at using the oxygen and therefore more prone to ischemia. There's other causes that you can consider, such as hypoxemia due to respiratory causes, anemia, or hypertension. Now, in terms of signs and symptoms of ischemic heart disease, there are some classical signs that you need to be familiar with. So this is, for example, the retrosternal chest pain, the chest tightness, or the discomfort that the patients can experience. This can be associated with radiation to the left arm, neck, or jaw. It can be associated with nausea, diaphoresis, or sweating, and shortness of breath. Pain is brought on by predictable factors, such as the three E's, which is emotion, eating, and exercise. And pain lasts for a short duration, often less than 10 to 15 minutes, and typically is relieved by rest and nitrates. Keep in mind though, patients with diabetes can present with atypical findings such as a silent ischemia or the pain can be atypical so they might not have that radiating feature or the pain may be dull or generally very diffuse. In terms of diagnosis of chest pain, there are a number of differentials that you need to keep in mind but in general the history will give you clues into whether the symptoms are cardiac in nature or of other cause. Some other cardiac and vascular causes that you need to bear in mind are things like pericarditis, myocarditis and aortic dissection topics which we'll hopefully cover in the future. In terms of respiratory symptoms or respiratory causes, you need to keep in mind other factors such as pneumonia, a pulmonary emboli, pneumothorax, and perhaps most commonly gastrointestinal tract differential diagnosis can include reflux, peptic ulcer disease, esophagitis, gastritis, and pancreatitis, all of which can present with epigastric or thoracic-like chest pain. And finally, musculoskeletal causes can't be forgotten. Things like costal chondritis or rib injury may present with chest pain, but but they are often localized to the particular area and the patient can actually point to where the pain is originating from and these can be worsened by breathing. Now, let's work our way to investigating the cause of the heart, uh, the cause of the pain the patient's experiencing. So in terms of the common investigations that you need to consider, let's start with some of the more basic approaches. So we can consider blood workup, which aims at looking at potential risk factors. So fasting lipids, thyroid function tests, fasting glucose and HbA1c for diabetes and metabolic or lifestyle causes. Electrolyte are important to, to be worked out because renal function may dictate some of the medications that we prescribe for these patients in the future. And full blood count, looking at anemias or white blood cell count if we think about infective causes. These are very generalized workups, and now we'll focus on more specific things that we can do to see whether this is ischemic heart disease versus other causes of chest pain. So in terms of imaging, we can consider an x-ray to rule out other causes such as pneumonias. We can assess using an x-ray the cardiac size, look for aortic dissection, pericardial disease, and importantly, we can look at ECGs to look for ST depressions and exercise stress testing, which we'll talk about shortly. So in terms of working up a patient, we first need to stratify patients into low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. In terms of low risk, so if we think this isn't probably ischemia or ischemic heart disease, there's probably no further workup that we need to do. From an intermediate point of view and high-risk point of view, this is where we then need to actually think about what, how we're going to work the patient up. So if a patient has intermediate risk, the most best approach is to undertake an ECG. And if the ECG is normal, then we can then subject the patient to some form of exercise stress testing. And if they can't exercise due to mobility problems or general fatigue or body habitus, then we can consider um, a pharmacological stress test where we give a patient medications that increase the heart rate to bring about ischemic state. 
Having said that, if the ECG is abnormal from the get-go, then we can look at exercise echocardiography, or if the patient's not able to exercise, then we can consider um, other testing such as nuclear exercise stress test. Other investigations that we can consider once we've done our workup is to perform an angiography. This is invasive and not without risk, particularly of vascular complications, and it's reserved for patients with lifestyle-limiting angina despite optimal medical therapy or high-risk patients, which um, we'll allude to shortly. What about treatment? Well, the goal of our treatment is to prevent premature cardiovascular death and myocardial infarction complications. We also want to reduce symptoms and improve functional capacity, reduce oxygen demand, and increase oxygen supply to the heart. There are some non-pharmacological approaches, and these are some basic lifestyle approaches that we can tell our patients. This includes increased moderate intensity exercise, smoke cessation to improve hypoxic state, and minimize vascular damage brought about by smoking, limit alcohol intake, and limit saturated fat and salt intake. From a pharmacological point of view, beta blockers are the initial therapy and this includes things like metoprolol or atenolol. They reduce cardiac demand by slowing heart rate and thereby improving perfusion of the heart. If a patient can't tolerate beta blockers or for example if they have severe asthma and uh, beta blockers may be contraindicated, you can consider calcium channel blockers such as dutyazem or long-acting nitrates. In terms of nitrates though, the patients need to have a nitrate-free period of at least 8 to 12 hours, otherwise the patient can develop tolerance to the nitric effect. We have to avoid calcium channel blockers in patients with heart failure because I think they have been shown to cause more harm than benefits. And also, we need to consider antiplatelet therapy such as aspirin. Clopidogrel can be considered if the patient can't tolerate aspirin. And this is to prevent thrombi formation if the lumens are getting highly narrowed and are at an increased risk for clotting and obstructing. Other treatments that we need to consider include the use of AIDS inhibitors, particularly for hypertensive patients, patients with diabetes, those with reduced left ventricular ejection fraction less than 40, and those with chronic kidney disease. ACE inhibitors have been shown to reduce cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. If they can't tolerate ACE inhibitors, for example, they develop a severe cough, then you can consider angiotensin receptor blockers. Statins are another important arsenal in our management plan. Statins such as atorvastatin or superstatin can be considered and statins in general have been shown to slow progression of atherosclerosis as well as stabilize plaques, thereby reducing the risk of the plaque from rupturing and completely occluding the affected artery. They've been shown to reduce MI and also been shown to reduce the risk of death and benefits are proportional to the extent by which we reduce the LDLs. Now looking at more invasive treatments, for example, looking at revascularization, this is most beneficial in patients with extensive or severe disease, those with symptomatic patients despite optimal medical therapy, with reduced left ventricular function, multivessel or left main disease involvement. And the decision to choose percutaneous coronary intervention, so angioplasty or stenting versus surgery, really depends on a number of factors. So a patient's comorbid conditions, coronary anatomy and operative risk. Percutaneous interventions improve symptoms but not survival. They're reserved for patients who are symptomatic despite medical treatments or who can't tolerate medical therapy due to side effects. For example, you put them on nitrates and they get severe headaches or those with high-risk findings or non-invasive Imaging. Surgical intervention is another option, and that's predominantly reserved for patients with left main or multivessel disease involving the proximal anterior descending artery and reduced systolic function. So today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our co-editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. 
If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.